0: ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program
1: providing independent media coverage
0: of environmental and ecological studies
1: with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events
0: in order to foster open discussion
1: of human relationships with nature and the earth.
0: And to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world.
1: Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers
0: working at the
2: studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana,
1: and financially supported by listeners like you.
2: Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly
1: and I'm David Lyman. Today on our feature, Beth Edwards from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talks about aquaponics in schools.
2: That's coming up later in the program, but first, your environmental headlines.
1: The International Union for the Conservation of Nature carried out a detailed multi-year study showing that climate collapse and environmental degradation are fueling violence against women and girls, and that gender-based exploitation is hurting our ability to tackle the environmental crises. Kate Orrin, a lead author of the report, observed: quote, "As environmental degradation and stress on ecosystems increases, that in turn creates scarcity and stress for people, and the evidence shows that where environmental pressures increase, gender-based violence increases." End quote. Gender-based violence includes domestic violence, sexual assault and rape, forced prostitution, forced marriage, and child marriage. For example, the report found that gender-based violence and the exploitation of women and girls are linked to environmental crimes. In Colombia and Peru, illegal mines are strongly linked to an increase in sex trafficking. Alren went on to say, quote, gender-based violence is one of the most pervasive and least talked-about barriers that face us in conservation and climate work."
2: The global fossil fuel industry emits 25 to 40 percent more methane than previously thought, a study published in Nature found. This includes methane released during the extraction of fossil fuels, from leaks of natural gas from pipelines, factories and homes, and fracking operations, and melting permafrost according to the research team led by researchers at the University of Rochester and Oregon State University. If human-caused methane emissions make up a larger part of the total, reducing emissions from human activities such as fossil fuel extraction and use will have a greater impact on curbing future global warming, the researchers said. Methane emissions to the atmosphere have increased by approximately 150% over the past three centuries, but it has been difficult for researchers to determine exactly where these emissions originate in part because heat-trapping gases, such as methane, can be emitted naturally as well as from human activity. Methane is the second largest human contributor to global warming after carbon dioxide. Compared to carbon dioxide, methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas, but it also has a much shorter lifetime in the atmosphere. It lasts an average of nine years in the atmosphere, while carbon dioxide takes thousands of years to remove from the climate system, the researchers said. This combination makes methane an especially suitable target for curbing emission levels in a short time frame. If we stopped emitting all carbon dioxide today, high carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere would still persist for a long time. Methane is important to study because if changes were made to our current methane emissions, they would have an impact on temperature more quickly. Methane emitted into the atmosphere falls into two categories based on its amount of carbon-14, a radioactive isotope. There is fossil methane, which is stored in sediments and underground reservoirs that no longer contain carbon-14 because the isotope has decayed. There is also biological methane, which is produced on the planet's surface and contains carbon-14. By measuring the carbon-14 level of methane in the atmosphere, it is possible to tell how much of it came from fossil sources and how much of it came from biological sources. To separate the natural anthropogenic Pogenic mo- fossil methane components, an international team of researchers traveled to the interior of the Greenland ice sheet to drill ice core samples f- that contain bubbles of air f- from the pre-industrial period around the year 1750. The ice core samples act like time capsules. They contain air bubbles of ancient air trapped inside. The researchers used a melting chamber to extract the ancient air from the ice and then measure the carbon-14 of the atmospheric methane. Because the carbon-14 has such a low concentration, they needed to melt around a ton of ice to get enough air for a single measurement. The researchers found that almost all of the methane emitted to the atmosphere was biological in nature until about 1870. That's when the fossil component began to rise rapidly. This timing coincides with a sharp increase in the use of fossil fuels. The levels of naturally released fossil methane are about 10 times lower than previous research reported. Given the total fossil emissions measured in the atmosphere today, the conclusion is that human-made fossil component is 25 to 40% higher than previously thought.
1: Researchers released a sobering study this week showing that all of the world's coral reefs may be lost to the climate crisis by 2100. The bleak outlook means that restoration efforts will face Herculean challenges, according to information presented by researchers at last week's Ocean Sciences meeting in San Diego, California. Rising sea temperatures, acidic water, and pollution are proving too much for the reefs to handle. About 70 to 90 percent of the world's existing coral reefs are predicted to disappear in the next two decades, according to scientists from the University of Hawaii, Manoa, as CNN reported. To make their predictions, the scientists mimicked future ocean conditions like sea surface temperature, wave energy, acidity, pollution, and overfishing in areas where corals are today. Looking at those models, the scientists found that most parts of the ocean will not sustain habitats for corals by 2045 and almost no suitable habitats will exist by 2100. The new research is disheartening for efforts to restore corals by growing them in labs and then putting them back into the ocean. While those efforts have had 60% success rate, the research suggests that lab-grown corals will not stand up to warming oceans and increased acidification. Scientists are predicting a mass bleaching within the next couple of weeks in Australia's Great Barrier Reef. From previous years of bleaching and hurricane damage, roughly half of the reef is already dead. The reef is undergoing heat stress right now, with patches starting to bleach. While a major widespread bleaching has not occurred yet, scientists have warned that it is likely if high ocean temperatures around the reef do not drop in the next two weeks. Already, temperatures across two-thirds of the reef are about two to three degrees Celsius above normal, with typical peak temperatures still a month away. It should be noted that we have chosen to include this story because it represents a new aspect of corals. This story paints a bleak future. There will undoubtedly be additional articles on this topic to see if this perspective is correct.
2: A quarter of all land leased by the Bureau of Management for Fossil Fuel Extraction from 2017 to 19 was within wildlife corridors, or priority conservation areas wildlife corridors link fragmented habitats together increasing access to food water and mates for endangered animals the corridors are critical all over the country since animals habitats have been destroyed or degraded by roads cities and industries without the corridors as human activity continues to disrupt the natural world wild animals would lack a lifeline Yet the Bureau is leasing those corridors to oil and gas companies. Wildlife corridors are never the same after oil and gas companies arrive. Light, dust, and noise from oil infrastructure construction are so disruptive that they can stress and even kill animals. The plants that traveling animals rely on for sustenance are torn up or flattened. Gas flares pollute the air. Oil spills can degrade soil kill vegetation, and harm wildlife.
1: More than four in ten deaths in the United States associated with air pollution can be attributed to emissions that came from states other than where the deaths occurred, according to a study published Wednesday in the journal Nature. The easterly drift of emissions across the country is known as cross-state air pollution, the largest source of which has historically been fossil fuel burning power plants. The new study identifies key trends in cross-state air pollution from 2005 to 2018, including which sectors of the economy contribute the most pollution, which states are net exporters of pollutants, and which states suffer most from air pollution wafting across the borders. Overall, premature deaths associated with air pollution from fossil fuel combustion declined markedly, but by about 30 percent over the period studied thanks to a shift to renewable energy, curbs on particulate matter in the air, and greater fuel efficiency in automobiles. Electricity generation owes much of the reduction to the ongoing industry-wide switch from coal to natural gas and renewables and to increased regulation. It is the only sector in which emissions are limited by the EPA under the cross-state air pollution rule. The Trump administration has worked successfully to ease those limits.
2: California is headed toward drought conditions in February, typically the state's wettest month. The lack of rainfall could lead to early fire conditions. With no rain predicted for the remaining part of February, it looks as if this month will be only the second time in 170 years that San Francisco has not had a drop of rain in February, according to the Weather Channel. While the Pacific Northwest has flooded from heavy rains, the southern part of the West Coast has seen one storm after another pass by. Last week, the U.S. Drought Monitor said more Californians are in drought conditions than at any time last year, as the Weather Channel reported. On Thursday, the U.S. Drought Monitor said nearly 60 percent of the state was abnormally dry, up from 46 percent just last week. Another alarming sign of an impending drought is the decreased snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. The National Weather Service posted to Twitter a side-by-side comparison of snowpack from February last year and from this year, illustrating the meager snowpack this year. The snow accumulated in the Sierra Nevadas provides water to roughly 30% of the state. Right now, the snowpack is at 53% of its normal volume after two warm and dry months to start the year. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Climate Prediction Center forecasts that the drier-than-average conditions may last through April. In normal years, there is little rain between May and November.
1: In a new analysis called Circular Claims Fall Flat Comprehensive U.S. Survey of Plastics Recyclability, Greenpeace assessed plastic product waste collection, sorting, and reprocessing in the U.S. determined the legitimacy of so-called recyclable claims and labels on consumer plastic products. Accurate recyclable claims and labels serve three important functions. Truthful advertising to consumers preventing harmful contamination in the nation's recycling system, and identifying products for elimination or redesign to reduce waste and plastic pollution. Greenpeace found that some PET number 1 and HDPE number 2 plastic bottles and jugs are legitimately labeled as recyclable today in the U.S., Common plastic pollution items, including single-use plastic food service and convenience products, can't be legitimately claimed as recyclable in the U.S. Further, plastics number 3 through 7 have negligible to negative recycling value in our category of products that multiple recycling programs might collect but don't actually recycle. Those products are being dumped or incinerated. Last full-body shrink sleeves on PET number 1 and HDPE number 2 on bottles and jugs make them non-recyclable.
2: A bipartisan bill in the State Senate would bring back higher rates for net metering in Indiana. At a press conference, sponsors of the bill urged supporters to contact the chair of the Senate Utilities Committee to make sure the bill gets a hearing. Net metering gives people with solar panels credits for any excess energy that they deliver to the grid. Two years ago, Indiana passed a law to slowly decrease the the amount solar customers get for that energy, from the higher retail rate to the lower wholesale rate. One of the bill's sponsors, Senator Mark Stoops, Democrat from Bloomington, says when the law went into effect, Indiana killed a fledgling industry and the jobs that came with it. According to the Clean Energy Trust, there are five times as many clean energy jobs in Indiana as in fossil fuels. Quote, heard from many installers that their business decreased drastically, and they had to change their marketing. They moved to other states, End quote, he says. Republican Senators Vanita Becker, Republican from Evansville, and Ron Alting, Republican from Lafayette, are also sponsoring the legislation. Several organizations support the bill as well, including the Citizens Action Coalition, Hoosier Environmental Council, Indiana Distributed Energy Alliance, Sierra Club, Columbus Community Solar Initiative, Solar United Neighbors, and Solarize Indiana. Right now, the power to bring back those higher net metering rates is in the hands of the Senate Utilities Committee and its chair, Senator Jim Merritt, Republican from Indianapolis. He authored the original law to phase down net metering and will decide if the bill will get a hearing. Merritt said in a statement he would not hear the new bill.
1: The Hoosier Environmental Council opposes drainage legislation under consideration at the Indiana State House that it says would deregulate wetlands and could lead to their loss. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management is also opposed to the bill for its possible impacts on water control. Originally, about 24% of the state acreage was wetlands, which people drained for farming and building. Over 85% of the state's original wetlands have been lost. Wetlands are necessary to purify water, absorb excess water to prevent flooding, and to provide habitat for wildlife. According to the bill, since 2015, more than 2,000 permits have been processed for the more than 1,000 regulated drains in Indiana. The deregulation of wetlands, as permitted in the bill, would exempt drain reconstruction from Indiana's wetland regulation. The measure means that county surveyors could adjust the size, depth, or route of regulated drains without permits or state oversight. Loss of wetlands could ensue.
2: When it comes to protecting bees, Indiana has a dismal record. Bees are critical to the environment and global food supply. They pollinate 71 of the 100 crops that provide 90% of the world's food, including apples, strawberries, and almonds. Millions of bees are dying off at alarming rates, ensuring that bees survive will require every state to do its part to address the most pressing threats facing them. The Environmental Advocacy Group, Environmental Action, graded each state on its efforts to regulate bee-killing pesticides, cultivate bee-friendly habitat, and raise awareness of bee colony collapse. In the ratings, Indiana received an F with a score of one point zero zero points. Indiana has taken no action on pesticide regulation, earning it zero points. Further, the state has taken no action on habitat protection, for another zero points. As to pesticides, Indiana has taken no action to restrict the use of neonicotinoids, or neonics, a class of pesticides highly toxic to bees. A growing body of research shows that neonics are a leading cause of colony collapse. Only three states, Connecticut, Maryland, and Vermont, have banned the consumer sale of neonics. And now for our feature, We will hear Beth Edwards from the Indiana Environmental Reporter talk about aquaponics in schools.
0: When Greg Marlette was 13, he helped an elderly neighbor start her lawnmower. As a thank you, she gave him cuttings from her colia plant in her garden and told him to put them in water. Within a few days, the plants had developed roots. Marlette planted them on the outside of his house and taught his friends how to grow them too. The experience ignited a fascination in Marlette that led to his career as an environmental educator for the Morgan County Soil and Water Conservation District, and his latest endeavor as the owner of Fresh Way Farm, an aquaponics business in Martinsville, Indiana. The farm consists of commercial aquaponic farm production and an education and outreach program for local schools. Aquaponic farming differs from the better-known hydroponic farming in that it supports an entire ecosystem. In hydroponic farming, food must be added to the water for plants. Aquaponic farming combines raising aquatic life, such as fish, snails, or frogs, with growing plants. A typical system will have a tank containing an aquatic animals connected to the grow beds for the plants. The wastewater from the animals filters into the grow beds, where bacteria consumes ammonia and nitrites, and produces nitrates, which nourish the plants. The clean water is recirculated into the animal tank. Aquaponics uses about 2% of the water that conventional growing methods use losing water only through evaporation and plant uptake. In addition to saving water, the method results in faster growing time for the plants.
2: You're actually
1: delivering the nutrients directly to the roots. So the extra energy that it's not having to expend underneath goes up into the plant. So we get about half of the time to develop the plant.
0: Being a totally organic system, aquaponic farming takes up less room and costs less than conventional farming. It has the added benefit of not producing any chemical runoff, as traditional farming does, which could potentially harm freshwater ecosystems in rivers and lakes, and also groundwater.
1: We've got problems, and they need fixed, but we don't have it bad. We're not fist fighting over water, but there are large portions of the world that are, and it's moving across the United States. It's coming right across, it'll be here eventually, and we'll probably have to deal with it at some point. I won't be here for it, but if some of these methods that save water and use it over and over again are still producing tons of good, healthy food. That's a win.
0: Freshway Farms has helped set up aquaponic systems in three Morgan County schools: Mooresville High School, Monrovia High School, and Green Township Elementary School. A fourth aquaponic system is being installed in Martinsville High School this semester. Each is a properly working commercial system that provides students with a broader view of agriculture, and potential job training. Brittany Bentley is Associate Director for the Community Foundation of Morgan County, which gave Freshway Farms a grant to build the aquaponic systems. Morgan County is very rural, and with aquaponics system being the new and amazing trend, more environmentally friendly than farming, we wanted to make sure that students had a resource to not do what they used to do in the past to farm, but actually give them a future education in what farming would look like. Green Township is an agriculture-based school where the first-graders are in charge of the aquaponic system. They must feed the fish and take care of the crops. This is Trina Dodge, who teaches one of the two first-grade classes at the school. Day before yesterday, I think it was, they got to taste a couple of the things that we grew, the green onion and the kale, and they were just really excited. They couldn't believe that it tasted that good. Greentownship principal Paul Spar said he found many students have no idea where their food comes from. Really, we want the kids to understand that you don't go to the store and it's just a piece of beef, and that's how it came to you, to show the kids that there's a lot of work involved. Currently, the vegetables and grasses produced by the first graders are being fed to the chickens cared for by the kindergartners. However, once the production kinks have been worked out and state health and safety guidelines have been met, the goal is to be able to use the lettuce and produce in the school cafeteria. Monrovia High School is already putting its produce to use by donating it to the town's food pantry. I'd love to see an aquaponic system in every school and be more of a farm-to-school table because it's better for them. It doesn't have the preservatives and the pesticides and everything like that that the kids get now and some of their vegetables because they're frozen and processed. Besides the educational and nutritional aspects of the aquaponics system, there are also potential economic and job opportunities. Bentley said the foundation encourages opportunities outside the traditional college path that get students more involved in the trades, farming, and other careers that help stimulate the local economy. Spar agreed. It's a huge industry, and we want to open the kids' minds and open doors for the kids. Marlette is continuing to grow the commercial side of Freshway Farms and has a partnership with a local restaurant to buy his produce. He also sells his plants and vegetables at the Martinsville Farmers Market and is planning on launching a larger wholesale operation within the next few years. Meanwhile, in every aquaponics system Marlette has currently in operation, there are colias for Suki.
1: I owe it to her to spread that on.
2: For EcoReport, I'm Juliana Daly.
1: And I'm David Lyman. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market in Delhi. Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus.
2: Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree hungers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships.
1: To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at (laughs) wfhb.org.
2: The Owen County Soil and Water Conservation Service will host an introduction to woodlot management tonight, Thursday, February the 27th, from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Owen Putnam State Forest Office, located at 2153 Fish Creek Road in Spencer.
1: The Marsh Madness Festival will be held a little earlier this year because of climate change on Friday, February 28th, and Saturday, February 29th, at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area to coincide with the peak sandhill crane and waterfowl migration. The festival headquarters are at Humphreys Park in nearby Linton. Events include crafts, live bird displays, informal presentations, and bus tours to Goose Pond.
2: Sycamore Land Trust Little Hikers will host a Nature's Teas and Treats program on Friday, February 28th from 10 to 11 a.m. at Cedar Crest, located at 4898 East Heritage Woods Road in Bloomington. Many plants in your yard are edible. Learn all about them as you hike the prairie and woods around Sycamore Land Trust's office. RSVs are required. Go to https colon slash slash sycamorelandtrust.org slash hike dash RSVP.
1: The Hinkle Garden Farmstead Open House is scheduled for Saturday, February 29th from 1 to 4 p.m. You will be experiencing maple syrup season and the sugaring operation at the farmstead. Farmstead is located at 2920 East 10th Street in Bloomington and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places.
2: A bluebird nesting box workshop will take place at Springmill State Park on Sunday, March 1st from 1 to 3 p.m. Join John and Cherie to hear about bluebirds and other cavity nesters. Contact Cherie to reserve a spot at sbelt at dnr.in.gov or call 812 849 3534.
1: And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com.
2: This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Beth Edwards. Myself, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar.
1: David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green edited Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman.
2: And I'm Juliana Daly.
1: And this is EcoReport.